they were a little arrogant. I think they were kind of, um, you know, we we walked into their territory. So, you know, you little country boys come over here and think y'all can play ball. Y'all can't play no ball with us. You know, we're Southern Cal, you know, and I guess I never got into it. You don't want to talk trash, that's fine. You know, after playing Clemson for three years, golly, we, we ain't going to never hear too much trash talking the more than that games, you know. But And, uh, you know, that those things happen sometimes, you know. Some people just don't have that proper respect because, as I said, this game, uh, you know, we're coming from a program that wasn't established like Southern Cal and, you know, Notre Dame and Michigan and those places like that. We were just kind of getting started. You know, seven wins was a great win for – you know, people in in South Carolina, which I don't know how many they had even before that, but you know, but uh, you know, seven wins at Southern Cal year after year, they they get ready to fire somebody. <laughs> Welcome to Hidden Yardage. I'm your host, Joe Moore. This podcast is a journey back to the 1980 college football season through the memories of those that played, coached, and covered it. New episodes released each Tuesday will carry listeners through that season, one week at a time. For more information, please visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. If this is your first time listening, you may want to go back and start with Episode 1. This is Episode 3, Fight On. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. The Alabama Crimson Tide has reclaimed the top spot in the polls following Ohio State's unimpressive opener against Syracuse. The Tide had won the national championship in 1978 and 1979 and now had the inside track on becoming the first team to ever win three straight titles. Bama had only two ranked teams on its schedule when the season began and were figured by most to go unchallenged until a November clash against Notre Dame that was being tabbed as one of the most anticipated games in Crimson Tide history. Alabama's ascension to the number one line was part of minimal shifting in the Week 2 rankings. Purdue, despite picking up a win at Wisconsin, was the lone team to drop out of the poll. That made room at number 20 for South Carolina, winners of its first two contests by a combined score of 110 to nothing. Around 3 a.m. on Friday, September 19, 1980, a Titan II missile housed in an underground silo and armed with a nuclear warhead, exploded in Damascus, Arkansas. The rocket was capable of carrying a hydrogen bomb to a target 6,300 miles away, presumably in the Soviet Union. The blast was rumored to be caused by a fuel leak and carried such force that it erupted through the 750-ton metal and concrete lid and catapulted the warhead a few hundred feet away, where it was found intact. The explosion sent a huge mushroom cloud in the air and injured 22 Air Force personnel, at least one fatally. Arkansas's Governor Bill Clinton ensured citizens that there was no risk of exposure to civilians. The incident served as an appropriate lead-in for a Saturday of college football that saw several national powers flex their offensive muscle. The sixth-ranked Nebraska Cornhuskers welcomed the Iowa Hawkeyes and second-year head coach Hayden Fried Memorial Stadium. Iowa had gone 20 years and five head coaches without a winning season. In 1979, the Hawkeyes fell by only three points to heavily favored Nebraska and route to a 5-6 finish. 
Iowa fans were so encouraged by the near miss that the rematch in 1980 was the year's most requested ticket in Lincoln. The 4,000 plus fans that migrated from Iowa City were a bit less optimistic after the Huskers pasted their Hawkeyes 57 to nothing and allowed Iowa to cross midfield only twice all game. Iowa would again finish the year with a losing record, but in 1981, it would win eight games, including a victory over Nebraska, on its way to its first Rose Bowl since 1958. Big Ten teams were on the wrong side of several other lopsided scores this Saturday, including Illinois losing to Missouri 52-7, Michigan State getting ran over by Oregon 35-7, and Northwestern getting crushed by Washington 45-7. In all, eight Big Ten teams played out of conference games in Week 3 and went 1-7 in those contests. Throw in Ohio State's 47-0 thrashing of Minnesota, and the Big Ten's losing teams were beaten by an average score of 40-8. Setting aside the mostly miserable performance by the Big Ten, the Week 3 schedule featured several intersectional matchups of unbeaten teams from across the country. All of them were enticing, though none was likely to match the animosity of Georgia and Clemson. The two programs dueled for the signature of Herschel Walker throughout the previous year, and now prepared to add another chapter to their heated border rivalry. Walker and the Bulldogs were riding high after a dramatic escape in their first game and a 42-0 annihilation of Texas A&M in Week 2. Clemson was yet to be tested after a 19-3 throttling of Rice. But whether you rooted for the Bulldogs or the Tigers, in Athens, 1980 was the year of the pig. In the April before the 1980 season, the Georgia players looked forward to a tradition known as Sea Graves. It was a celebration that marked the end of spring practice, and a handful of seniors were committed to making this the best one ever. The party was legendary. The fallout, unforgettable. Here's team captain Frank Ross and Scott Werner. Well, it's a tradition in Georgia where um, today this is unheard of because there's no way in the world you could do this, but we go and solicit local um, stores, whether it be grocery stores, convenience stores, liquor stores, restaurants, and solicit donations of, of beer. Scott remembers exactly how much beer they got. 127 cases of beer, eight kegs. But even with all that alcohol, something was still missing. We decided we wanted this to be the best sea graze ever, and it's always a problem because there's never any food if I was always hungry. Well, the five of us that got together decided to do this, which was, um, it was uh, myself, Hugh Nall, Chris Welton, Nat Hudson, and Scott Warner. And um, we decided we didn't have any money, so we figured, oh, let's get a pig and barbecue it. And I said, well, I know where we can partake of one. And uh, I mean, it wasn't like I had to poke these guys two or three times. It, it was like, sounds like a good idea. Let's go. <laughs> and uh, so we take two two arrows and a, and a bow with my, my roomie and uh, go out to the uh, ag school right there, hop a fence, and uh, pick out, yeah, that one looks good. Bow and arrow it, and, and uh, it was a 400-pound breeding sow. And yes, it was. Uh, we couldn't get it over the fence. I want to pause here just to point out a few things about this amazing story. These seniors had no problem going around and asking for free beer. But when they decided that they wanted food, the plan they settled on was shooting a university-owned pig from the on-campus research facility with a bow and arrow. And then because it weighed so much, they actually had to field dress it right there in the pen before they can get it over the fence and into the getaway car. We, we uh, had, had uh, borrowed a freshman's Tornado 
to uh, carry the hog in, and we grilled it on a chain-link fence gate. Of course, this story could only end with them getting caught, and Frank is about to tell you how all that went down. But the reason this isn't just another story of football players raising hell is how the whole team reacted and bonded over this one incredible adventure. When the freshman came, of course, you know, we had to kiss the pig and just, you know, just stupid stuff you do as, as crazy young kids in college. Um, and so uh, the seniors, we ended up leaving because we've been there all night, you know, cooking the pig and getting everything ready. So about 4 o'clock we left. And uh, the freshmen on their way out decided they were mad at the pig. And uh, I guess they, they've been imbibing in the alcoholic beverages and uh, were not ra- acting rationally. And so they cut the thing down, put it back in a pickup truck, and were driving through downtown, ended up at the girls' dorm, and some guy was sitting by his car with his girlfriend, they dumped the pig out, and she screamed. And the guy had enough sense to get the license plate number. The police went to check on the pickup truck. They saw the blood stains. And so the young man that was driving the truck, who had let his bar the day before to, to do the deed, um, he and the, he he's the one that got in trouble, and so we stepped up and said, "No, nah, it's not right for him to get in trouble." So the five seniors that did the deed uh, confessed that we had done it, and then, of course, Coach Dooling was really really upset with us, and um, and gave us some serious punishment. Took our scholarships away for the summer, had to stay there. Back then, you didn't stay in the summer; you went home and worked and made money for the rest of the year. So he made us stay. We couldn't live in university in our uh, athletic dorm. We had to live in university housing. Uh, had to uh, eat at university cafeteria instead of the athletic cafeteria. Um, had to work out with our coaches, with the uh, weight coaches, which was brutal during the summer in Athens. And, that, and I think that's one of the hottest recorded summers in the history of Athens. Uh, just happened to be. And then also, we had to work for four hours a day for free to re- to pay for the the pig and also uh, any other costs associated with it. And our job was to paint. There's a 220-yard cinder block fence around the football complex, and it's pure cinder block. And I'm not, I'm not sure if you're painting cinder block or not, but it's like a sponge. And so we were sitting there, and we had to paint the whole wall. And we got about five feet from it, and it took a lot, you know, several weeks to do that. And um, we get about, I don't know, probably 10 feet from it. And here comes Coach Dooley driving down in his Lincoln Town car. He rolls down his window, looks at us, looks at the wall, and he says, not good enough, do it again. So here we go again. So we ended up four hours a day the whole summer on top of everything else we had to do, uh, painting that wall. Uh, but it brought the team really close together. Uh, and that was, that's the key is after the incident occurred, we got in trouble. A lot of the players stepped up. Then you know, None of us had much money, you know, offering five, ten bucks to help us for the reimbursement of the of the pig. There's one sidebar that's funny. Coach Russell, you know, was was a coach that everybody just loved. And I remember him coming into the cafeteria the next morning after we confessed that we'd done it. And uh, Coach Russell comes in and goes, here, because uh, I understand that we killed a pig. And he didn't say y'all. He said we. Which I thought was very telling on how he perceived the situation. Irk Russell was as much a mascot for Georgia football as Uga. A fan favorite and beloved by his players, Irk coached the defensive line and loved embracing the underdog role so much that he would even ask Vince Dooley to give the nicer meeting rooms to the offensive players and coaches. Irk was a master motivator, and before the season, he would always hand out a schedule for his players to follow before they arrived back on campus for training camp. 
Here's an example of his advice from Sunday, August 10th. Go to church. Do not hate Tennessee while in church. 23 hours will be adequate today. Before practice, you could find Irk on the field doing push-ups. Before games, you could find him on the sidelines. He was easy to spot. Just look for the bald head with the bright red blood streaming down, the result of headbutting his helmeted players to psych them up for battle. There was no need for extra motivation when Clemson came to play Georgia. The two teams had a long history, and in 1980, the rivalry was extra heated, thanks to comments made by Georgia's radio announcer Larry Munson that alleged that Clemson's recruiting of Herschel Walker wasn't exactly above board. Georgia had dominated the rivalry historically, but the Tigers had won two of the last three matchups, including the 1979 game under their new head coach, Danny Ford. Ford played for Bear Bryant at Alabama and eventually was hired as an assistant at Clemson under head coach Charlie Pell. The Tigers had a losing record in eight of nine seasons when they hired Pell to take over the program. His first year at the helm, Pell went 8-3, and three, including a rare victory over Georgia. Pell's follow-up campaign was even better, as Clemson finished the regular season 10-1, and one, with the only loss coming against the Bulldogs. As the Tigers prepared for their bowl game that year, Pell left the program to take over at the University of Florida, feeling he could never win a title at Clemson. Many of the players supported the promotion of assistant Danny Ford to the head coaching position, and the school announced his hiring in December of 1978. His very first game was the team's Gator Bowl matchup against Ohio State on the night when Woody Hayes punched Charlie Bauman. In 1980, the Tigers were a young team, without a single senior on its offenses too deep. Clemson showed its inexperience during the first game of the season, fumbling six times in a 19-3 victory against overmatched Rice University. Saturday's game on the road against ninth-ranked Georgia would be a great test for Ford's Tigers, but if they were worried about how to stop Herschel, they were focusing on the wrong man. Scott Werner always dreamed of playing for Darrell Royal and the Texas Longhorns. After his final high school game in 1976, the Texas-born senior, who played his high school football in Georgia, traveled to Austin to see the Longhorns take on the Arkansas Razorbacks. Before the game, he met with Royal and told the legendary coach he wanted to play for Texas. He was assured that he would have a scholarship when signing day arrived. The Longhorns beat the Razorbacks that night, but after the game, instead of walking to the locker room, Coach Royal walked to a podium that was set up at the 30-yard line and announced that he was retiring. A week later, Werner committed to the University of Georgia. The 1980 matchup between the Tigers and the Bulldogs kicked off at 1.30 p.m. under overcast skies and a suffocating 97% humidity. Clemson took the ball first, and after only netting nine yards on its first three plays, set up to punt. And he gets it off long, spiral, and Scott Warner in the 35, the 40, the 45, the 50, the 45, the 40, the 35, the 30, the 25, the 20. Scott Warner coming this way, touchdown, touchdown. Werner remembers it as one of the easiest punt returns of his career, but it's what he did afterwards that caught the attention of head coach Vince Dooley. The, the three guys in front of me, Bob Kelly and Mike Fisher and, and Chris Welton, all, all three, I can hear the blocks being made as I'm catching the ball. And and I'd always go on with the straight up the field return. It, it seems to be the safest and quickest way to avoid uh, the bodily harm. I popped through those guys, and uh, honest to God, I got the punter. And you get tackled by a punter, you ought not be a punt returner. That's all there is to it. And so I'm trotting to the end zone. It, it's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's probably one of the easier returns I'd had in my career, uh, bar none. And Mike Fisher and I had been talking earlier, 
before the game about rolling the ball on the field and and uh, rolling seven. And, and uh, he said, "Yeah, you know, you don't have hair on your ass if you don't uh, roll, roll." And and I thought, you know, if I don't do it, he's gonna he's gonna give me all the grief in the world after a block he made like that. So I roll in the corner of the end zone right by the and, and roll a roll the football. Nobody nobody says anything until I get to the sidelines and Coach Julie said that that was a nice return, but don't ever do that again. <laughs> Clemson's next drive ended in a missed field goal, but Georgia was unable to move the ball and the Tigers got it back. After driving down to the Bulldogs eleven yard line, Clemson once again fell victim to Werner. All right, everybody in close now. A man breaks motion left. Homer Jordan on third and nine. He's sprinting back to the left. He stops. He throws it in the middle. And it's intercepted by Scott Warner behind the end zone. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty. Bootleg and, and my tight end, who I was responsible for, had blocked. And so I, I'm seeing there and watching him block, and and I, it frees me up. And so I'm reading Homer. And uh, he's rolling back the other way, and they're bringing a guy back across the field, you know, from the other way. And and uh, guy throws it right to me, and I'm running the right way against the flow. And Chris Welton's out in the flat, and he rolls a nice little roll block that kind of keeps the uh, a quarterback out of my way. And up the sideline I go. And I, I think had I not had the punt return earlier in the game. I'd have made it to the end zone, except I'm uh, I get to the I get to the five and he jumps and anyway we end up about the two. Quarterback Buck Ballou would gain the final two yards and Georgia, despite running only four offensive plays, was ahead fourteen to nothing. The two teams would exchange turnovers on their next possessions and Clemson would swap quarterbacks before scoring the final ten points of the half. At the break. Clemson owned the advantage on the stat sheet, but the scoreboard showed the Bulldogs ahead 14 to 10. The Tigers had a 16 to nothing advantage in first downs that had run 50 more plays than Georgia did. Even Herschel Walker was ineffective, carrying the ball for only 12 yards in the first two quarters. The well-rested Bulldogs offense would have to find a way to stay on the field in the second half or risk wearing out its tough but exhausted defense. In 1915, a secret meeting at a Portland, Oregon hotel resulted in the formation of a new college athletics conference called the Pacific Coast Conference. The endeavor seemed doomed from the start. Regional rivalries and internal bickering hobbled the confederation as it grew from four original members to ten, including Cal, Oregon, Oregon State, Washington, Washington State, Idaho, Montana, Southern Cal, UCLA, and Stanford. The league championed a code of conduct and strict rules on player eligibility too strict, it would turn out, for even its own members. In 1956, a widespread scandal among the conference's teams hit the newspapers. First, the University of Washington's players mutinied against their own coach and alleged that he was involved with the Seattle slush fund used to pay players. The league may have survived a single transgression, but once the allegations spread to the California schools, the vultures started to circle. UCLA was the next domino to fall, when an Oakland newspaper reporter published a story about football players getting paid under the table. UCLA dodged attempts at investigations by regulators for months before finally owning up to the violations. Then, things just got weird. A local politician published a list of organizations that he belonged to, and a housewife, married to a UCLA booster, was intrigued by the inclusion of a group called the Southern California Education Foundation, 
She phoned the politician's office to ask about getting involved, but couldn't get a straight answer. Her interest piqued. She went to the IRS, looking to find financial statement filings made by the foundation. Among the documents she received was a list of 40 students that had been aided by the foundation. She asked the clerk that had been helping her if those names meant anything to him. Yeah, he said. That's the roster for the USC football team. She took this information to her husband, who was only too happy to blow the whistle on the crosstown rival of his Bruins, and the 40-year-old conference seemed mortally wounded. Other revelations followed, and by 1959, the league had disbanded for good. The guilty programs formed a new conference, and it grew to eight members before adding Arizona and Arizona State in 1978 to form the Pac-10. But a fresh coat of paint was not enough to keep West Coast schools out of trouble. In 1979, 28 athletes at USC, including 19 members of the football team that defeated Ohio State in the Rose Bowl, had received credit for a speech communications class that they didn't attend. The university decided to give them a five-day crash course as a makeup, but upon review of the students' progress, required 26 of the 28 to enroll in a second makeup class because of irregularities in the first makeup attempt, including athletes turning in work that wasn't their own. The LA Times then broke a story about UCLA players receiving credits at local community colleges that they hadn't earned. It was just the tip of the iceberg. Schools up and down the coast were benefiting by keeping their athletes eligible with credits from fake classes. One Chicago Tribune writer showed how easy the process was having his granddaughter enroll and earn credits from a California community college. She was just four years old. The scandal made the cover of Sports Illustrated and resulted in a 1980 postseason ban and probation for half of the Pac-10's teams. USC, UCLA, Arizona State, Oregon, and Oregon State were not eligible to win the conference or play in a postseason bowl game. This news was particularly damning for the USC Trojans. John Robinson's squad entered 1980 ranked in the top five and had not lost in its last 20 games. Robinson had taken over for legendary coach John McKay in his three national championships, and he had earned a record of 43-6-1 in his first 50 games. The 1980 team would send nine players to the NFL draft at the end of the season, but its chances at claiming a national title appeared doomed without the ability to play and win the Rose Bowl. It was clear that the Trojans would have to impress the voters during the regular season. After a shaky 20-17 win on the road against Tennessee in its opener, USC had the chance to earn respect with a night game against the other USC, 20th-ranked South Carolina and its Heisman hopeful, George Rogers, with his 11.3 average yards per carry. This is the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. Very pleasant evening, 70 degrees, hardly any breeze at all, as we get ready for this intersectional collegiate football game, USC versus USC. That's right, the Southern California Trojans against the South Carolina Gamecocks. Hello, all week long, Gamecocks coach Jim Carlin gushed over the Trojans' defense, led by Ronnie Lott and the challenge it provided for his team. His counterpart, Robinson, was similarly concerned with how his defense would stop Rodgers, who he said compared favorably with a list of great backs to play at tailback U. On the fifth play of the game, both coaches received an early answer. As Rodgers took a pitch to his left, he was gang-tackled behind the line of scrimmage and lost the football. It was the tenth fumble for the Gamecocks in just over eight quarters, and it led to an early 7-0 lead for the Trojans. Carolina would respond with a blocked punt and a field goal, but a big return on the ensuing kickoff led to three more Trojan points and a 10-3 lead. The Gamecocks would inch closer and trail 10-6 at the break, despite outgaining the Trojans in the first half. 
Tight end Ben Cornett remembers how physical Southern Cal's defense was that night, and Steve Gattel recalls the nastiness it played with. So those guys that were the first defensive players that I competed against that really did a great job of when I went to try to block them, they were strong enough and long enough and lean enough. They would reach out and grab me before I could get to the body and throw me off the block by grabbing, stopping my charge, and then toss me one way or the other. My armpits were bleeding because of them pulling up on my jersey under my shoulder pads and hang and hang on to me. I was actually a blood under under my arm. I was shocked that, that Southern Cal was such a dirty team. You know, a lot of cheap shots, a lot of scratching, punching in the piles, uh, spitting, that kind of stuff. I had not seen prior to that on any team we'd played except perhaps Notre Dame. The Trojans opened the second half with a long touchdown drive, but missed the extra point to leave the score 16-6. to A few minutes later, Southern Cal turned the second Gamecock turnover of the night into a Marcus Allen touchdown run in a comfortable 23-6 to advantage. Rodgers would finally break free late in the game for a 34-yard touchdown sprint to finish with 141 yards on 26 carries, and the final score was 23-13. to After the game, Coach Carlin noted that he was proud of his team for going on the road and proving it could hold its own against one of the best teams in America. He wouldn't have to wait long to learn if his team could do more than just hold its own in a similar situation. In only seven days, the Gamecocks would head north to face the Michigan Wolverines in the Big House. The University of Michigan can claim almost as much responsibility for the greatness and lore of Notre Dame football as Notre Dame itself. In the late 1920s, Newt Rockney oversaw construction of a new on-campus stadium in South Bend that was patterned on a smaller scale after Michigan Stadium in Ann Arbor. It was after a victory over Michigan in 1909 that a Detroit Free Press newspaper writer first gave the football team from Notre Dame its nickname, the Fighting Irish. And perhaps most notably, it was Michigan's players in 1887 that taught Notre Dame students how to play football. The story goes that Michigan's team was on its way to Chicago to play a game against presumably Northwestern, when two former Notre Dame students that now played for Michigan wrote a letter to Notre Dame faculty member, Brother Paul, to tell him about their upcoming trip. Brother Paul responded with enthusiasm and asked the players if they could convince the team to stop in South Bend to teach the Notre Dame students about the new game so they could field a team to compete against Michigan. The team complied and arrived on campus a few days before Thanksgiving. After a tour and brief tutorial, the two teams played a 30-minute game that ended with Michigan winning 8-0. Before they left, University President Reverend Thomas Walsh assured the Michigan men of the, quote, cordial reception that would always await them at the University of Notre Dame. Now, nearly 100 years later, the Irish were still yet to defeat Michigan and South Bend, winless in five tries. In the reception had become far less cordial for the maize and blue. Since August of 1980, the Irish had been dealing with a lame duck coach. After five seasons, head coach Dan Devine announced during halftime of an NFL game that the upcoming season would be his last. He was stepping away from the most famous job in college football to spend more time with his wife, who suffered from multiple sclerosis. The announcement seemed to catch everybody off guard, though it wasn't exactly like everybody was sad to see him go. Devine left his job as head coach of the Green Bay Packers to follow legendary coach Eric Parsegian at Notre Dame after the 1974 season. Despite winning a national title in 1977 and giving Notre Dame one of its greatest moments when he surprised his team with green jerseys before a home game against USC, 
His demeanor and lack of comparative charisma never quite endeared him to the Irish faithful. Across the field from him this day would be a man that had no such problem with his team's fan base, Bo Schembechler. Bo was in his 12th season in charge of the Michigan Wolverines and had won at least a share of the Big Ten title in eight of his first 11 years. He was returning Michigan to its former glory and was excited about the opportunity to renew the long-dormant rivalry with Notre Dame. The two legendary programs had played just 10 more times since that first contest in 1887 until a deal was signed for a double home-and-home series beginning in 1978. The first two contests were split, with each team winning once on the other team's home field. The 1980 edition would turn out to be one of the best in the history of the rivalry, but is still the only one since 1978 not to be nationally televised. The eighth-ranked Irish entered the game as a four-point favorite over number 14 Michigan. Notre Dame had beaten Purdue in the first week of the season, while Michigan had overcome a pesky Northwestern outfit. The weather was warm and humid, with a steady 15-mile-per-hour breeze blowing through the stadium. Leading up to the game, Devine had been working with his freshman backup quarterback, Blair Keel, on a special version of the shotgun that he had put in the playbook especially for the Michigan game. In this scenario, Keel would stand a full 10 yards behind the center, making it look more like a punt formation. Early on, it appeared Notre Dame wouldn't require any special tricks as it opened up a quick 14-0 lead. With the Michigan offense going nowhere, Schembechler looked down his bench and called for Jimmy Wangler to go in the game. Wangler had been the Michigan starter in 1979, but blew his knee out in the bowl game loss against North Carolina when he was sacked by Lawrence Taylor. He had spent the offseason rehabbing and wore a non-contact jersey in practice right up until this game. The senior quarterback had an immediate impact, leading the Wolverines on a touchdown drive that cut the Irish lead in half. With only 90 seconds left in the second quarter, Notre Dame's Mike Curry threw an interception that Michigan returned to the Irish 27-yard line. Able to gain just six yards in three plays, the Wolverines lined up for a field goal. It was a fake that caught Notre Dame off guard and set Michigan up with the first and goal. On the next play, Wangler connected on his second touchdown pass, and the score was tied at the half, 14-all. Michigan started the second half with the same momentum that it had used to end the first. Anthony Carter's opening kickoff return was so dazzling that it caused Wolverines radio announcer Bob Euford to forget how a football field was numbered. Carter at the 1, Carter to the 5, Carter of Michigan to the 15, the 20. He breaks outside to the 25, down to the 30. He cuts back in at the 35. He cuts back in at the 40. It's a foot race to the 50, to the 60, down to the 75. Call it the 35 and down to the 30-yard line. And he's driven out of bounds. How do you like that, Euford, adding up from 50 to the 40 to the 35? Anyhow, he brought it from the one-yard line all the way back to the 30-yard line of Notre Dame. Six plays later, Michigan was in the end zone again for a third straight touchdown and a 21-14 lead. Both defenses then settled in as the teams battled for field position until, with a minute left in the third quarter, Wangler's pass intended for Carter was intercepted by John Krim. Enjoying an escort down the sideline, Krim returned the ball 49 yards for a touchdown. The point-after attempt by left-footed Harry Oliver was no good, and Michigan clung to a slim 21-20 lead. Schembechler once again switched quarterbacks, hoping that a return to the option attack would find success. With less than eight minutes to go in the game, and Wangler back on the field for Michigan and driving deep in Irish territory, linebacker Bob Crable forced a fumble on his 19th tackle of the game. Notre Dame had the ball and a chance to take the lead, but it hadn't completed a pass or gained a first down since midway through the second quarter. Sparked by a halfback pass, the Irish finally put a drive together that ended with a touchdown plunge to put them up by five with just three minutes to go. Improbably, 
the Wolverines answered back and were at the Notre Dame four-yard line with just 49 seconds left in the game. Wangler took the snap and drifted to his right. He lobbed a pass towards his running back, but it caromed off his fingertips and floated right into the waiting arms of Michigan tight end Craig Dunaway. Radio announcer Bob Euford just about broke the decibel gauge with his euphoric call. On the left is Ingram, on the right is Wolfhawk. And it is motion by Mitchell. There is a fake. He's looking for a pass. He's throwing it downfield. And it's caught there by Dunaway! It's caught Pennsylvania sophomore Craig Dunaway catches a tip pass in the Notre Dame end zone, six inches from the last line, and Craig Dunaway, God bless his cotton-thick and maize and blue sophomore heart. He'll never forget the day down here in the hole that Newt Rockney dug in 1930 when he caught a tip pass, and he gave Michigan a lead, 27 to 26. Thank you, Fielding A. Jones. Yards Michigan's two-point attempt failed, and so the Wolverines led 27-26 with only 41 seconds to go. While Michigan's sideline celebrated, Coach Devine told his freshman quarterback to be ready to go in the game and execute the shotgun play they'd worked on in practice. On first down, Keel sent a wobbly pass down the sideline into a crowd that included receiver Tony Hunter. The pass fell to the turf, but so did a penalty flag, as the Wolverines were called for interference. With the ball now at midfield, Keel was nearly intercepted on his next attempt, and a second down pass fell incomplete. On third down, he connected with Phil Carter for a gain of nine, and Notre Dame called his final timeout with just 11 seconds remaining. On fourth and one from the 39, with the ball too far to try a field goal attempt, and the Irish unable to stop the clock, Keel completed a pass to Hunter on the near sideline for five yards and a first down. Five seconds remained as Hunter stepped out of bounds at the Michigan 34-yard line, and the Irish trailing by a point. Notre Dame's kicker, Oliver, had only attempted one field goal in his college career, a 36-yarder in Week 1, and had never kicked one from further than 38 yards at any level. His earlier missed extra point was the difference in the game, and he lined up a 51-yard attempt into a stiff 20-mile-per-hour wind. As he approached the ball to drive it towards the goalposts, fans that were in the stands that afternoon swear the wind fell silent just for the few seconds that the ball hung in the air. A 52-yard attempt, 5-2 for Harry Oliver. Set down, he kicks it up. It is. It is good. It is good. It is good. Notre Dame wins, 29-27. It was the biggest moment in Oliver's career, who was likely only in the game at that point because the long-distance kicking specialist had been injured the previous week. Both locker rooms were tearful after the game, and Schembechler would still protest the ending years later, claiming that the fourth down pass just before the field goal attempt should have been ruled incomplete. The Irish would enjoy a week off before visiting Michigan State and hosting the Miami Hurricanes in a rematch of a 1979 game that was played in Tokyo, Japan. The Wolverines had no time to recover from the devastation in South Bend, as they had to get ready to host South Carolina, with both teams desperate to avoid losing their second straight game. Back in Athens, Georgia, Clemson was still trying to figure out how it was losing at halftime of a game it was so thoroughly dominating on the stat sheet. The Bulldogs' offense had been invisible in the first half, but Scott Werner's punt return touchdown and 100-yard interception return had staked Georgia to a 14-10 lead after two quarters. Finally, in the third quarter, Georgia earned its first first down of the game, 
and converted its first two drives into field goals for a 20-10 lead. Clemson's head coach Danny Ford was platooning his quarterbacks, Mike Gask and Homer Jordan, looking for something to spark his offense. Jordan, incidentally, had grown up in Athens and used to sell drinks in the stands at Sanford Stadium. In the second half, it was Gask that got the call, and he answered Georgia's field goals with two scoring drives of his own to narrow the lead to 20-16. With under three minutes to go and Georgia unable to run out the clock, Jim Broadway came on to punt for the Bulldogs. The snap was a good one, but Broadway dropped the ball, and Clemson fell on it at the Georgia 41-yard line. After a short run and a pass interference called against Werner, the Tigers had a first down at the 10-yard line, trailing by only four points. Looking for the go-ahead score, Gask rifled a pass towards the end zone, but linebacker Frank Ross tipped it into the hands of Georgia defensive back Jeff Hip, who fell to the ground at the one-yard line. When they were driving on us, um, I tipped the ball and, and, and Jeff Hip intercepted, and I was happy as hell because I knew our coach was going to get mad at me that I did intercept it. But I was trying to I, trying to, I was trying to change direction when the ball came, and uh, I, the ball went right through my hands, but I, I flicked it up high enough where at least somebody could jump up for it. Herschel Walker was able to gain a first down to run out the clock and preserve the 20-16 to victory. For the second time in three weeks, the Bulldogs' defense had come up with a takeaway deep in its own end to save the game. Georgia's dream of a perfect season was still alive, but just how long until its luck would run out? Next week on Hidden Yardage, the story of the 1980 college football season. A battle of top teams as Joe Paterno and the Penn State Nittany Lions welcome the Nebraska Cornhuskers to Happy Valley looking for payback. You can't be any better prepared. You can't be any more excited. You can't want to win a game anymore than this team wants to win tomorrow. Florida State's defense has yet to surrender a point as it heads to the fabled Orange Bowl in Little Havana for a date with Jim Kelly and the Miami Hurricanes while Michigan and South Carolina look to get back in the win column as their coaches play mind games before kickoff. Plus, Rutgers and Princeton, the schools whose first meeting gave birth to the college game in 1869, do battle for the last time. The Hidden Yardage podcast is researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Moore. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. For a list of everybody that appeared in this episode and special acknowledgments, visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. There you'll find a full transcript of every show, as well as schedules, stats, and standings from the 1980 season. Please email your questions and comments to me at joe at hiddenyardagepodcast.com. This podcast is made possible through Moonlight Magic Productions. Thank you for listening.